the key to manufacturing innovation, in my opinion, and Variable is based on this, is that it starts with establishing a vision. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, hey, what's up? Welcome to episode 62. Today, we are talking about on-demand labor. We are talking about operations, and we're talking about co-founder dynamics. We've got Mike Kinder, the CEO and co-founder of Variable, jumping on the show today. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because we featured Variable back in episode 12, which is exactly 50 episodes ago, when we talked to their co-founder and CTO, Noah Labhart. In today's conversation, you can expect three things. First, we're going to get to know Mike and his journey through becoming an operations leader to ultimately co-founding Variable. Second, we're going to talk about how to pick a co-founder and co-founder dynamics in startups. It's not often that we get to talk to two different people from companies on this show, so it'll be interesting to get Mike's take on how him and Noah were a complement to one another as they began their journey at Variable. Finally, we're going to talk about the state of the manufacturing industry. The last time we spoke to this team was before COVID started in February 2020, and we're going to get Mike's take on why he feels it's time for manufacturers to start going on the offensive. And heck, I'll even throw in a fourth thing to expect from today's conversation. If you are a fan of the show Parks and Recreation, make sure you stick around until the end of the interview for an alternative leadership conversation. If you're interested in learning more about Variable or any of the resources we mentioned in today's episode, make sure to go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 62 to access the show notes to this episode. And if you want to join a community of forward-thinking manufacturing leaders, make sure to head to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community to join our group of nearly 500 manufacturing all-stars. This group lives on LinkedIn. We're having conversations like we have on Manufacturing Happy Hour there every day. So I'd highly encourage you to, again, head to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community to join our crew today. And with that, it's time to jump into today's interview. Let's get you introduced to Mike Kinder. Our guest today has an exceptional track record in the industrial manufacturing and supply chain operations world. He's been building teams, solving complex problems, and driving growth within companies for over 20 years. Now he's taking on what is one of the most complex problems in manufacturing, finding the right talent to fill roles in manufacturing environments where production demands are constantly changing. Let's welcome co-founder and CEO of Variable, Mike Kinder, to Manufacturing Happy Hour. It's great to have you here, Mike. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. And this is a this is a unique opportunity, right? For our longtime listeners, they might be familiar with Variable from our episode we did back in February of 2020. It's been over over like 18 months now, uh, where we had your co-founder Noah on the show. So that's episode 12, and we're excited to hear things uh, from your your perspective today. Great, yeah. Noah had a lot of fun on that podcast, and it turned out great. 
Yeah, and, 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 and since this is your first time here, we got to paint the picture, right? It's manufacturing happy hour. You're, for those of you that are listening to the audio version today, Mike is wearing a fantastic cowboy hat. Uh, you're based down in Texas. So if we were hanging out down in your neck of the woods, where might we be having this conversation over a drink today? I think we'd probably be at Billy Bob's in, in Fort Worth. What's, uh, what's that place like? Tell me a bit about it. Oh, Billy Bob's, the largest country dance hall in the... Uh... In the world, I believe. Oh, okay. I don't know. I didn't make it up there when I was living down in Houston. I did my share of uh, two-stepping when I was there. Picked up salsa dancing, actually. But uh, yeah, it sounds like a good spot. Let's assume we're having this conversation before uh, the dancing really kicks in. And if we're hanging out there, you know, we had Noah on the show. He described your solution at Variable as like the Uber of the factory floor, an on-demand place to to find labor if you're having this conversation over a drink how would you describe what variable does if someone's just getting to know you yeah i think that's probably a fair characteristic or characterization the uber for manufacturing labor it's it's almost more like uber meets tinder for manufacturing um where we encourage that kind of a that kind of a relationship but it's um i mean it's really deep rooted in in what we think is happening in the industrial innovation in the landscape. And what, um, you know, the problem that we're trying to solve is, is an impossible operations problem. You know, it's not, it's not necessarily an acquisition problem. It's a, it's kind of like, how do you build a game theoretically stable operating model in the face of constant uncertainty where labor is always your primary constraint, right? So, if you're truly oriented around satisfying your customers, whether that's lead time, service levels, levels of customization, what that means is you have to be incredibly flexible and agile to accomplish that. And if labor is your primary barrier to that agility, then you got to think of it differently. And so that's what we're trying to serve out. And I mentioned it the last time I spoke with with you and your company was February 2020. So that was literally right before the world drastically changed. So my follow up question, if we're we're still kicking it there at Billy Bob's is what's changed for you guys over the past 18 months? Well, we're about five times as big. That's uh, one thing that's changed in terms of our performance and key metrics. Um, but the world has changed a lot. And and and. and You'll have to pardon me because I, I often take a contrarian view on things. I, I would make the argument that the world was changing a lot, a lot before February of 2020. And so um, what we were trying to anticipate are the effects of some megatrends that are kind of teaming up and creating a perfect storm for, for manufacturing companies. And I think what, what we've lived through over the last 18 months is... Um, kind of a temporary exaggeration of the problems that we're going to see coming to uh, coming to a head over the next 10 years. So it's it's not necessarily a, a unique, spontaneous problem. It's a it's an amplification of a much bigger set of challenges and problems. Temporary exaggeration of problems we're going to see in the future. I love the way uh, the way you describe that. And and I can visualize that. I'm going to go back to that at some point in our conversation today. But I want to get to know you a little bit first because, mm-hmm. I, you know, I took a bit of look, a look at your background. And the first thing that jumps out is you spent 
some time at Boeing and GE and let's say what were specific engineering roles, but that was like for a hot minute. And then you jumped more into a leadership development track focused on operations. So why that path? Yeah, no, that's the right question because that's that's when I fell in love with manufacturing. So I'm I'm an aerospace engineer by degree, undergrad. Um, never, aside from that one internship before my senior year of college, never did engineering a day in my life. I went right into operations at GE, um, did an internship there um, before jumping right into that, but never turned back. It, it, operations all the way. Uh, that was my that was my passion from day one. Ever since I started doing lean manufacturing and kind of uh, manufacturing engineering work on the shop floor, that was it. That, that that's what I was born to do. So I did that. Followed the GE track for about uh, eight years. I was, um, you know, how GE does their leadership programs, and you kind of every six months you move to a different spot and then you settle in somewhere. But you're still on the GE tour of duty where they're moving you around from site to site and i settled in on a on a plant in chicago on the south side of chicago called ge zenith controls and uh, ran shop operations there from 20 2007 to 2011 so through the recession and, and, and back up and tough tough period of time then and then went into uh operations strategy consulting around 20 2011 and did that for about six years, focused primarily on manufacturing strategy. So a lot of manufacturing footprint work, uh, a lot of kind of make buy type work, a lot of um, buy side due diligence that I did for private equity, looking at manufacturing businesses and assessing the value creation potential. And I did that all the way um, kind of up until the point where Noah and I kicked off variable. Yeah, I noticed that uh, after you spent a long time there at GE, and afterwards you spent some time in the PricewaterhouseCooper world as yes. well. Can you tell me a bit about that transition of how, because you told me that your love of manufacturing got you into opera operations instead of engineering. I'm curious what the what that next step in the story looks like before uh, you met up with Noah. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of your audience can relate to this. when you're When you're running a manufacturing site, or a distribution side, anything that's, you know, really uh, focused on production or material movement. You're spending a lot of time like a like a coach on the field. You know, you're you're moving things around. You're directing traffic. Uh, what I thought I was missing at the time, just in my own development, was uh, perspective. I had seen a lot of GE sites, and I had run one site for about four years, but. Um, I needed to see what the rest of the world looked like, and so consulting was was my was my goal coming out of that to kind of expand my vantage point and see different kinds of businesses, different kinds of problems. So at the time, um, I joined a firm called PRTM, and PRTM at the time was one of the best pure operations strategy consulting firms around, and. Pretty shortly after I joined, uh, PwC acquired PRTM. It was a, in a series of acquisitions to rebuild the management consulting arm of PwC. So I'll forget the uh, the legislation that forced a lot of the audit firms to divest their consulting practices around 2000. But about a decade later, they all started rebuilding, and uh, and that's how I ended up at PwC. 
Well, uh, two very prestigious organizations to be a part of leading up to starting your own business with Variable. So let's jump into that a little bit. How did you meet Noah? So it's a funny story. And Noah and I have kind of known each other prior to, prior to Variable. We have a pretty significant mutual connection. Um, a guy by the name of Rylan Barnes. So Rylan, Rylan is the younger brother of one of my best friends. I've known the Barnes family since I was, since we were all very little in diapers. And uh, Rylan, a very successful engineer, entrepreneur, uh, started one of the most prestigious startups in Dallas, startup history. Um, the first app in the Google Play Store, I believe, uh, it's called uh, Shop Savvy. Uh, one of the first. And oh, no, 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 no. Noah will correct me, but it's, uh, I think, the longest standing app in the Google Play Store, if that makes any mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. But um, so I touched base with Rylan at a certain point in time uh, around the beginning of 20, 2016. And uh, he said, hey, you know Noah, right? Uh, Noah would be your, your ideal partner here. And Noah, uh, was Ryland's roommate at Texas A&M. So we had the, the connection right there. Why did you think Noah would be your ideal partner? Uh, I mean, Noah can do everything. I mean, Noah's a, a, <laughs> a, 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 a brilliant engineer. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. in addition to that, Noah's a great product guy. You know, he's, mm -hmm. he's a phenomenal um, uh, kind of design guy he's a phenomenal leader but he also has experience on the shop floor noah mm -hmm. started his career in it like his first mm -hmm. kind of out of college job it in the manufacturing space so in addition to knowing pretty much every language being a full stack developer he also knows the legacy it the legacy architecture mm -hmm. that a lot of uh, manufacturing companies have and it's only a matter of time and we're already there but at the time when we found it we knew we were on a collision course with that, that legacy mm -hmm. architecture. So that was going to be a really important thing for us to, to understand. What a cool story. And that was, that was kind of my inkling as well. Cause I'm like, you know, Noah, when I remembered our conversations, like he, he's been a developer, he's been more on that software side. He's got that it background. You have the operations technology background where we can't really go an episode of manufacturing uh, of manufacturing happy hour, not talk about, operations technology and uh it coming together so you both see from what i can tell bring very unique strengths to this equation I i'm curious we've got folks that listen to this show that work for companies maybe some are thinking about entrepreneurship what type of advice would you give to listeners that might be thinking about starting a company and looking for a co-founder i think you got to find the complementary skills like you said it's very important um and, and you kind of have to look at that early stage roadmap and, you know, assess what, what do we have to do as basically a founding team and what do we have to accomplish? And, you know, there are certain capabilities you need in an organization that you might not need in those first six months, you know, first year, maybe even two years. So what, what you want to try to do, in my opinion, is, is make sure you have those primary kind of core competencies covered. And, mm -hmm. and, and make sure that you understand kind of how your skill sets are going to play well together. And you no, know, Noah and I had that 
from the very beginning. I mean, the stuff that that he's good at, I haven't touched in 20 years. And the stuff that, that I'm good at is the stuff, you know, Noah would rather kind of take that input and build, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it fits together real nice. And, and we've had a just an incredible partnership, an incredible working relationship. We're very good friends and continue to get, uh, uh, become better friends by the day. I love I love exploring the the co-founder dynamics that you have, and I think you're probably one of the clearest cases of you know what you each bring to the table in terms of looking at your backgrounds, hearing about your backgrounds through this show. I'm going to transition to variable a bit here because when we were emailing back and forth preparing for this conversation, you mentioned over the past 17 months you've gotten a good pulse on the industry, you've gotten a lot of perspectives to to what's been going on, and and right at the start of our conversation. You mentioned the issues that came up during COVID you feel are just a temporary exaggeration of a lot of the issues in the manufacturing world. So give us the, uh, you know, the, the Mike Kinder lay of the land of what you're seeing out in the manufacturing sector right now and the challenges folks are facing. Yeah, you, you can all. And, and by the way, before I jump into that, I should probably also plug one more thing for Noah. Okay. You know, he's probably the only CTO that you've ever talked to that used to be able to 360 dunk a basketball. You know, oh, really? I don't know if he brought that up before when we last spoke. <laughs> no, he's, he's too humble. He, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't do that. But um, so the, the kind of two categories, I, I would say, of the mega trends would be like ongoing trends, things that have been going on for 20 years. And then another category being those that are a little newer, and, and harder and they're all hitting a like a collision course like the old trends are things like you know cost to scale just that incremental cost that you need to ramp up ramp down capacity that's still a huge burden and, and a huge obstacle for businesses um, another one is cost pressure you know the the cost competition coming from low cost producers makes it really hard to do anything you know, slightly aggressive in in U.S. manufacturing. That's kind of getting harder and harder. You've got kind of customer demands constantly ratcheting up, you know, such as lead time. If you are a third-party logistics company and you've got more than a two-day lead time, you're just not competitive. If you're in a make-to-order industrial products company and you've got more than a two-week lead time, you're not competitive. And you're just on a slow death. And that just keeps getting tighter and tighter. Um, demands for customization. The kind of the old days of having a catalog of, you know, five different configurations of your product and forcing those onto the market. The market's rejecting that. The market is demanding certain levels of customization. It's, it's demanding like a flexibility on the producer's part to accommodate those specific uh, options, configurations, you name it. But then on on the newer, so those are all old trends. I mean, they're just trends Mm -hmm. that keep coming on like a freight train, a little bit harder, a little bit harder, a little bit harder. Um, On the newer trends, what you have is uh, kind of disruptive technologies that are impacting the ecosystem and uh, impacting the ecosystem in disproportionate ways. So causing bargaining power to shift a little bit, causing, almost like a, a heightened uh, 
paranoia around maybe what customers are doing, what competitors are doing. Um, it's almost like a like psyops or, or information warfare. There's a lot of buzzwords out there that most people either don't understand or they're promoting in a way to kind of agitate the landscape. They're not, well, said differently, they're not promoting technology in a helpful way. They're doing it in a, a very chaotic way. So that's an obstacle. It's a real one. Uh, another one is demographics. You know, um, the average age in manufacturing is about 50, 55, I think, uh, at this point in time. So we got a big cliff here. You know, we're not we're not bringing in new talent at the rate that we're losing talent in this space. Uh, you have geopolitical uncertainty that started way before 2020. You know, the mm -hmm. fact that we have supply chains that are heavily weighted in low cost country to the point where, you know, some OEMs are 95.5 low cost, high cost buy. That's mm -hmm. unstable. And so what we were looking at is we have a perfect storm circulating here and it's coming to a head. It might, you know, it might not be 2020, 2021, but in the next decade or so, we're looking at a, at a major problem and companies better start playing offense now. If they don't, they're going to be playing defense probably when it's too late. And that's what I wanted to, uh, that's what I wanted to ask you about next, because you mentioned that it's time to turn the table and start playing offense. So uh, you just defined what you meant by that, but how do companies start playing offense in that case? You got to start taking orders. It, it's, mm -hmm. it, you got to act more like a startup where in a startup, you've got a scope, but you are opportunistic and you take that on. You seize the opportunity. Um, what we're seeing right now, I think, finally, um, is a referendum on a lot of the global for lack of a better term, the globalist perspective on supply chain. And maybe just in general, globalism, uh, we're seeing a referendum on that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it per se. What, what, I, think, what I think has happened is that bureaucratic laziness has tilted the scales to a point where it doesn't make any operational sense. It doesn't make any sense for... Uh, for countries in high cost regions like Western Europe or North America. Uh, it doesn't make any sense for the middle class. So we have an opportunity to roll this back right now. Uh, mm -hmm. And we have to, uh, I, I think 2020 was the proof that, uh, mm -hmm. you know, bureaucratic, I'll take the benign explanation, I think, bureaucratic complacency has, has led us to this point where we're out of balance and now we got to recalibrate. Can you give us an example of someone you've seen that you've worked with at Variable? And, and no need to name names if you can't. You can give it as a general example. But a company that's done a good job of taking the offensive, as you've said? Yep. Yeah, no, no doubt. Oh, there's a couple that are easy to tell. I'll, I'll do it that way. Um, okay. It, it kind of reminds me of Field of Dreams. You know, the uh, if you build it, they will come. Mm -hmm. So it's still unclear to me whether this is a supply side led thing or a demand side led thing. You know, there is a point where OEMs are going to get so desperate, they're, they're going to have to figure it out and they're going to going to need to, if not subsidize, 
the local supply chain, they're going to have to get more involved. But in the meantime, what I'm trying to promote on the, let's say, supply side of that equation is make yourself available, take more orders, and figure out a way to free up capacity. So an example I like is, uh, you know, there's this uh, 3PL in Dallas, because our scope is manufacturing and distribution, uh, mm -hmm. and logistics. And this uh, 3PL, they just had your classic warehousing constraints that they had irregular deliveries, they had irregular pickups and, and routes on kind of to their end customers on their, their delivery routes. And what they would do is kind of ebb and flow into the warehouse. You know, they would take drivers off the road, do the unloading, do the stocking, do the kitting and the, the staging. And what we said is, stop it. You got to keep your drivers on the road. If your drivers aren't on the road, you're not making any deliveries. So what you need to do is you need to build up this redundancy in your warehouse so that when mm -hmm. a whole pile of trucks show up on Monday morning, you can unload those quickly and keep your drivers fed. So that's what those guys did. They started off with a very simple use case of never let like inbound material clog up everything else in my operation. So I'm going to quickly respond to that. I'm going to bring people in. We're going to get those trucks uh, unloaded and all that material stock. In about three months, what they realized is we now have 50 people. And now their baseline was about 20 people in this, in this mm -hmm. company. They're about a $10 million company. And they realized we have 50 people now that know their way around our warehouse. What else can we do with those capabilities? So they started taking these orders that they had never taken before, like these random, you know, Microsoft is willing to pay a million dollars if you build, you know, a thousand displays for all the Costco's and DFW. They started taking the, that kind of work on these bidding platforms. And within six months, they tripled their revenue. They made use of those capabilities. So, I mean, the point being is there's plenty of work out there. And mm -hmm. if you got, if you just set yourself up to take it and do it right, you could, there's a essentially an infinite amount of growth I'm finding. It's uh, very apparent that you have an operations mind looking at the process, figuring out where the longest pole in the tent is and uh, finding ways to streamline that in that example. I love that. I've, I've got to ask as uh, on on the lines of variable, what's what's the news with variable these days as well? If I remember right, you guys were just in the southeast when I first spoke with you like a year and a half ago. And now, I mean, I, it's probably easier to name the spots you aren't right now. You're launching in St. Louis. I think that's uh, one of the reasons this conversation came back up. You've got a lot of presence. What's new for variable and where are you going these days? Yeah, the St. Louis launch is exciting. That that we just launched that seven days ago on the on the first of September. Uh, got a great team in St. Louis. That's our seventeenth city now that we're in. Nice. So seventeen. Uh, so it probably is easier to point out where we're not. You know, we're <laughs> we um, we're not in the Northeast yet. So we've got no presence there. Um, we just launched in the Midwest in general. Um, in early 2020. So those are still relatively new, but we're in now six cities of the Midwest. Um, and, but then we've got most geographies covered in the Southwest and Southeast. So Texas, Arizona, Georgia, Florida, Tennessee, Alabama, we're in all those. So, so I think that when we look at the US 
market, there's about 50 cities that we really like that we would consider hub cities mm-hmm. that have the scale to support a marketplace like ours. And uh, about 40 of those are not on the West Coast. And it might be a while before we, we go to the West Coast. So, but uh, so we're about halfway there on on kind of our target target markets. We should be in all of those by the end of next year. Love that. Well, you got the cowboy hat, so I'm sure a wester, westward movement will uh, will occur at some point. But <laughs> no, it's been impressive to see how you, not only like geographically how you've grown, but just all uh, the team members you have as well, connecting with all the folks over there at Variable. It's truly remarkable about like with what you've done. But to an extent, I almost want to say it's no surprise, right? You're solving one of the biggest problems in the manufacturing world, which is helping people get the labor the work that they need when they need it and creating a great solution for the people that are working those gigs as well, right? They can, for, you know, the modern worker needs a flexible work schedule, right? Like we're both having this conversation from home today. It's it's no different for someone on the, the factory floor needing some fax, uh, flexibility there. So I've always been fascinated with what you're, what you're doing over there. Big, uh, really, really impressive with what you've been up to. I always tell people this podcast is often a leadership podcast disguised as a manufacturing podcast. And I'm looking behind you, and I think I can see a little pop figure of uh, Ron Swanson. Am I looking at that right? That's Ron Swanson right there, right next to (laughs) Willie Nelson. Yeah. Love it, and this is Love actually it. my office. I'm, I'm, I'm in the office, not not. Oh, you're in the office. Okay. Well, it looks very cozy. It looks like yeah. a, it looked like a Cadouble is a nice home office as well. So, spoke too soon there, but uh, I'm gonna have some fun with this next question again since we're we're getting towards the end of the interview. Uh, what's a leadership lesson you've learned from? I, I'll I'll let you pick either Ron Swanson or Willie Nelson. <laughs> There's probably not any from Willie that I could think of. Uh, God, with Ron Swanson. You know, it's funny about Ron Swanson. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm just morphing into Ron Swanson or subconsciously, or if that's been a deliberate evolution. Um, but I, you know, maybe one that Ron would appreciate is, you know, to any of the entrepreneurs out there, and, and I would argue to any ops leaders out there. Um, succeed and fail on your own terms. You know, mm. don't let yourself be hijacked and and play only play a fair game. And that and that's mm-hmm. and that's I think especially for the younger guys on the entrepreneurial side, you know, often they get pulled in many directions. They get pulled in directions by their investors, by you know, people in the organization and they they forget that at the end of the day the bet is on them. You know, the bet is on them as founders. And, you know, if you betray yourself, then you're going to lose track of, you're going to lose sight of what you're doing. And and so mm-hmm. you got to stay true to yourself on that. Even if that means um, following your intuition, you know, strictly. But then for the ops guys, the same thing holds, I think, where we're in the business of industrial innovation. And one of our main hypotheses is this has to be led by the ops guys. This is not an IT thing. This is not an HR thing. This is not a finance thing. The ops guys need a seat at the table again. And it's on 
it's up to them to reclaim it. So we are positioning this solution out there for the operations guys. And what we're saying is you're the only ones with the expertise uh, that's going to bring labor, machine, material type solutions to market. That's not going to come through anyone other than you. So I need you to step up, start demanding what you need to succeed and reclaiming some turf that's been taken away from you and your right to do it. And, you know, if, 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 if you ask anybody who's been in the industry for a long time, what they'll say is, you know, there was a point in time where I had authority over finance or HR or procurement or one of these things, and they've been plucked clean over 30 years. And so what do you what do you end up doing? You end up running somebody else's operation. You're just the person that takes all the, everybody else's stuff and makes it into and then ships it out the door. And you're the one that gets your throat choked for not hitting your on time delivery numbers or not, you know, mm -hmm. having lead times that are competitive or productivity issues. It's like, no, 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 no. That's not a fair game. You need to take more control of the inputs and, and demand it. And that's how we're going to actually innovate because you're the only ones that are going to be capable of understanding these types of solutions like variable and like any others that, that I think are, are halfway decent right now. I wasn't necessarily sure where a Ron Swanson oriented leadership question was going to go, but I love that it led to such a straightforward ask of the operations folks listening to this yeah. show. Well, I hijacked it a little bit. <laughs> Pardon me on that. No, it was great. It was great. I mean, it would have been better than my answer. I would have just talked about how Ron Swanson made me further appreciate things like bacon and eggs and coffee in mm. the morning, but mm -hmm. uh, which which is certainly important in and of itself, but maybe not as relevant to uh, the manufacturing topic today. <laughs> so, you know, as as we wrap things up, I got to ask, Mike, is there something you wish I would have asked you that I haven't yet? No, I no, I think the 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 you know, I'm I. For the last four years, five years, I've been an evangelist for manufacturing. And I think mm -hmm. maybe the one thing I'll impress on the listeners is the key to manufacturing innovation, in my opinion, and variable is based on this, is that it starts with establishing a vision. Because if you don't do that, then there's no industrial technology that's going to make any sense. Like you have to view the menu of technologies and innovations, offerings, solution providers, you have to look at that through that a priori lens of what am I trying to be? And what do I need to look like in 10 years? Then you can start selecting in the right types of, of innovation. But if you don't do that first part, then you're flying blind. So again, that's why we need the ops guys to step up because they're the ones that have to have to set that vision. It's not going to come anywhere else. What a powerful way to end this. The key to manufacturing starts with establishing a vision. Couldn't have said it better than my uh, better myself. You know, I do. I do have one question. I wish I would have asked you. You, you mentioned your co-founder Noah it can do a three sixty dunk. What's your hidden talent? We uh, we got to get that out of you before we wrap up. Today. <laughs> oh man, I you know I don't I I don't have any anymore. I'm a father of two young sons, and I'm coaching baseball and Cub Scouts in my free time when I'm not keeping an eye on school boards and uh, <laughs> some of those those hobbies that have formed in the last 18 months. Um, I wish I had some. Maybe my only one is uh, baseball statistics. There was a point in time where I could have told you every starting lineup 
for every World Series team since 1900, along with some key stats. Yeah, it's a little rusty now, but I could probably come close. That counts. That counts. Well, from fatherhood to operational excellence to apparently baseball stats as well, you cover a lot of ground, Mike. It's been a lot of fun having you on the show today. It's been a lot of fun being here. I appreciate it, Chris. And everyone out there, thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you again next time. Hey, thanks for listening, and a big thanks to Mike and the team over at Variable for jumping back on the show. Also, a big thanks to the St. Louis crew that ultimately uh, inspired us to do this second interview, and I hope their launch in St. Louis and beyond, depending on when you're listening to this, continues to go well. But if you want to learn more about Variable, you can A, head to their website, that's variableops.com, and that's very spelled like a very good company, not the typical way that you've spe- you'd spell variable. But again, variableops.com. Or the easier way would just be to go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 62 to find the show notes for this episode. And if you do want to dive back into the archives, our first conversation with their CTO and co-founder, Noah Labhart, is episode 12, manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 12. I've already given you a lot of web addresses today, so I'll keep it quick. I'd love it if you joined the Manufacturing Happy Hour industry community over at LinkedIn. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community. It'll take you straight to our private LinkedIn group where you can collaborate with other forward-thinking manufacturing leaders. Finally, thank you to our sponsor for this episode, Concept Systems. Concept Systems is one of the premier systems integrators in the U.S. with a vast array of vertical and application expertise. Highly recommend you check them out. Go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash seven for our live podcast that included them as we talked about digital transformation over a drink. Thanks again, Concept Systems, for sponsoring this show. And with that, we are wrapping up. Stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you for another interview next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.